From Coruscant to Tatooine and every planet in between. Star Wars, prototypes and production with your host, David Quinn. It's a trap! Yes, Did you know that Kenner destroyed half of the early bird certificates produced? That was just one of the fascinating facts I learned in Ron Salvatore's final article of the year. The article centered around the controversial but novel early bird certificate offering in the fall of 1977 that ignited the Star Wars toy craze. For more than two decades, Ron has written articles for the website The Star Wars Collector's Archive, helping to explain many of the unexplored areas in our hobby's history. And while most collectors are familiar with the story behind Kenner's early bird certificate, very few have asked how it was received back then, by both retailers and the general buying public. These conversations with Ron have been immensely enjoyable and enlightening. In addition to learning more about the history of the Kenner toys and other Star Wars memorabilia from that era, Ron has pulled back the curtain on his process, sharing how he approaches covering collecting topics. So for our final conversation of the year with Ron, let's pick up where we left off last time. We were finishing up our discussion on his article from May about the history of the unlicensed lightsabers released as Kenner toiled away on creating its own Lucasfilm licensed one. And then we'll explore the early bird certificate controversy and whether it really made an impact on consumers. We have a lot to talk about, and I'm curious to hear about his experience at this summer's annual collector's event in New York what the hobby and the community mean to him, and which topics he intends to write about in the coming year. And again, I think your article did something very special for us because I think we had a very limited understanding of what they were. And a lot of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s maybe had that one lightsaber. And so when we thought of these knockoff ones, we specifically thought of that one. And I think you pulled the the, the camera back a bit um, to give us a fuller perspective of how much was actually produced, why they were produced, what was available, and what the differences were. So uh, a fantastic read for anyone who hasn't read it. I, I fully recommend it because I, I think you did a great job of, of mapping that all out. And, and again, providing humor and um, and a lot of interesting facts along the way, too. Yeah, well, I'm glad you like it. And that was the intent, really. A lot of this is um to sort of, when I write something, a lot of times it's to explain something to myself, you know, and that certainly I felt I was in that position of not having a good overview of what was actually released then. So it's like, well, let's try to do some research and figure out the, to the best uh, extent possible, you know, what was actually out there at that time. And, you know, I, it 
does a pretty good job. Like I mentioned in the article, I'm 100% sure there's tons of other, you know, bootleg sabers that are out there. You can't possibly cover every single thing, but I think we got most of the major ones. Absolutely. And yeah, you're probably right. On, on a local scale, uh, there were probably even smaller knockoffs and, you know, knockoffs of knockoffs. So um, you wrote um, your most recent article was uh, in October of, two, of 2022, and it was called Not Just Any Robot, Kenner and the Star Wars Early Bird Certificate Package. Yes. Um, so that one is the last thing I put out on the blog. Um and yeah, I kind of I kind of like that one. That that's a really one of my favorite ones. Um, so I hope you got something out of it. I did, and I loved it. I loved your take on it because I originally going into it, I thought you were going to explain maybe the history of of the, the certificate, and instead, what you did is you gave us an idea of the reception uh, among consumers and um, retail owners. And, and, and how it was received by the general public, which I think is fascinating because it was controversial. Um, could you give us a brief overview of what the early, early bird certificate package was? Right. So as you mentioned earlier, Kenner was in the position of not being able to get action figures to market for the holiday season in 1977 for the simple fact that they'd only signed on as a licensee and, you know, late winter, early spring of that year. So it takes about a year to get action figures to market. Um, so the legend is that, you know, the Kenner president at the time was Bernie Loomis, that he decided that, uh, well, we can't sell action figures. So what we'll do is sell a gift certificate in Christmas. And then kids will get that for, you know, either Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever. And then they can send away the gift certificate and they will get their figures a couple months later. Um, and so that had never been done before and really hasn't been done in quite the same way since um, for some of the reasons that we'll probably talk about. But, um, you know, that, of course, fostered the whole legend. It became, that's about rock, Rocket Fets aside, you know, that's about the most legendary Kenner product. You know, everybody knows that you know, Kenner sold the empty box for Christmas of 1977. Uh, and so it's one of these fun things to talk about if you're a Star Wars collector. So everyone is familiar with that, but um, I think they've, and I, and I think you know the idea now is is understood and, and pe- most people um, accept it. But I think at the time, as as you say in your article, there was a, a ton of controversy around it, and there was a pretty negative view of it. I would say very negative, yeah. And I was semi aware of that. I don't think that you know most collectors were, but I was a little bit aware of it. And part of it is because I'd done research on you know, like the earlier article I wrote on the stuff that was released in 77. And I had seen some of the articles from the time with people complaining. Um, and so that was really the genesis of this. I, I had done a lot of early bird searches in newspaper archives and I started saving just every article that mentioned it. And I wanted to present them somehow and couldn't really figure out how to do that. So um, I figured, well, it would be fun to sort of just present this as kind of like a reception history of the product and, and see where we get with it. And it turned out pretty good just knitting together all the different takes from different, it's mostly retailers and, and customers. Um, but yeah, it, it, I would say definitely it was very negative, um, the press coverage. And I think some of the best articles when it comes to collecting help to bring us back to that time period in which you know these these pieces these iconic pieces came out and and what the reception was um i love the quote in the article uh you write 
that you know essentially someone purchasing one of these kits was buying a promise rather than a product. Yeah, I mean you're you're not getting the actual product for Christmas and I think that's part of what annoyed a lot of retailers is that if you're a retailer what is this leading to? You know what I mean? Like are we just going to start the, it takes a lot of the onus off the manufacturer, right? So if in the old the old way, and I guess it's still sort of the way, like if you have a toy and you're a toy company, you go out and you invest the money in making this thing. You know, maybe you check with your buyers first to see if there's interest, and sometimes orders come in before the manufacturing's done. But you put up a lot of money to manufacture X number of units, and then retailers take and that, that's a risk and then retailers take their own risk in buying some from you and putting it in so there's multiple layers of risk involved but if you're just selling a gift certificate you can sort of put it out there and then you're only going to make as many as you sell right so it takes a lot of the risk off of the manufacturer uh, kenner in this case and you're at, and you're basically pushing that off on the retailers. And of course, if you're a retailer and every company starts doing this, pretty soon you have no products in your store. You just have a bunch of paper redeemable certificates, right? right. Which is not something. And then why do you even need the store? Like you could just go right to Kenner, which is what they do now. You know, they do the they cut out the retailer altogether, and you just buy it direct from manufacturer, and they only make as many as they sell, right? They mm-hmm. only they if you, if they don't sell enough pre pre orders, they just cancel it, right? So I think you had some retailers looking down the pipe and being like, well we don't want to sign on to this. Like if you're not going to make the items and we're not going to carry these things in our stores, we don't sell gift certificates. Um, so yeah, it, it's a different, it's a different model than having a product on store shelves for sure. And you also pointed out too, that for the consumer, it could be a tricky thing because they're, they're buying this promise. They're getting it a number of months later. And if there are issues with it, do they go back to the retailer or do they go back yeah. to Kenner? Yeah, right. That's if you think it through. I mean, that, and you're a store owner. That's kind of one of the things I would have been thinking. Like, okay, I'm going to be. There's not even a product here. What happens if the kid gets it and is unhappy with it? They can come back and complain to me, and I have to tell them go take it up with Kenner. Uh, it's just an odd, an odd model. Yeah, I, if if you think it through, like I think the retailer antagonism kind of makes sense in a lot of ways. When did Kenner start to advertise? Or when did the the retail stores start to advertise and see ads for the certificate? Um, I want to say around October, you start seeing ads and whatnot um, where they start advertising that stuff. The earliest mentions I found about not just early bird stuff, but just Kenner's 77 line in general was probably September of that year. And a lot of this was put out by Kenner. You know, just imagine if you're the PR guy or gal at Kenner. Like you had to do a lot of legwork, you know, you know, priming the pump, you know, and, and making sure people are aware of your, your holiday plans. Everybody's asking, the press is asking, people are calling Kenner. So you'll find a lot of the same names turn up, but there's like a multi-month campaign of Kenner trying to get the word out through, through press stories uh, about what the early bird certificate was, what their 77, what their 77 line consisted of explanations of why they didn't have stuff on the market and those articles tend to be more skewed towards the positive because they're clearly coming from Kenner. Um, it's the ones that are coming from the retailer perspective that are negative. Was Kenner able to premiere any of this stuff um, that they were producing at a trade show like a toy fair in advance? Um, 
No, because Toy Fair is in February, right? Um, so that was actually that occurred before they even had the license. So the Toy Fair '77 happened in February. Then um, the uh, Kenner signed the license in March or April, and then you know by fall you haven't had Toy Fair '78 is, is a few months ahead, and you haven't had the next one. My guess is that they probably did have regional shows to some extent that they were able to show these things at, but I don't know what those were precisely, but I think I found a reference maybe in a couple of articles to um, either the, the writer of the article or a retailer mentioned that, Oh, we saw this item at such and such. So I think they probably did have some regional exposure through like industry shows, but not toy fair. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And the, the regional ones, you know, would only be able to get the product going so far, right, to local stores, but um, not have the effect that something like a, a toy fair would have. Yeah, I mean, they probably had, you know, their products for delivery catalog that I mentioned earlier, plus maybe some photos and maybe a three-dimensional prototypes to some extent. But yeah, so I think that there was some of that, but the, the, just the timing, it was just a very tough situation for Kenner. position to be in because they had this huge movie and they would have products out right but just dealing with the public reaction which is so negative and so just wanting to blame them for not having stuff you know they just if you're the pr guy kenner that had to not be a great time period just got to be constantly putting out fires so from your research what was the general feeling of the consumer base and the general feeling of the store owners that would that would have to sell this um, just pretty negative. Um, th- they range from, we're not carrying this. We've made the decision not to carry this to, oh, we have some, but it's not selling so well, um, on the retailer side. I didn't see anybody who I would call positive. There's some were fairly neutral. They're like, yeah, we've sold a few, but I would say it's negative to neutral on the retailer side. On the consumer side, most of the reactions that are quoted in papers are negative, and that could just be because that makes for better press. Um, but I didn't find – I can't – off the top of my head, I can't remember any that we had in that article where the person is like – usually it's a mom who's shopping where the mom is like, oh, I can't wait to buy this. My kids are going to love it. Most of them are pretty skeptical. Like, really? I'm going to give this to my kids? Like, they're not going to know what to make of this. Um, so, yeah, at least what's in the papers, it's mostly – skewed pretty negative. And you have my favorite quote in the entire article uh, where you say, the early bird certificate was not a fun and novel thing it's taken for today, but viewed as something adjacent to a scam. And I think you are the, you're really the first person that I've heard say that. Um, and I, I, I had no idea that it was viewed that way. Yeah, I think that's, I don't think that's an exaggeration. It's kind of, is a bit like that's kind of the tone that comes across in a lot of these things um you know especially like i said with retailers being super skeptical of companies moving to this model of selling a certificate rather than actually having a product um there's a lot of people who just felt like okay that's great you couldn't get figures out but then why are you selling a certificate you know just you know just take the just take your lumps and you know get them out in in spring or whatever and and do that you don't need to try to sell me this paper thing for a promise later. You know what I mean? Like it was not met with a lot of approval from people. People were not happy with it. 
Um, no, and, and parents were basically challenging their kids to be patient and to wait for something that they would get during the holidays for months. Yeah, and I don't, I mean, what's the point? Like, if I'm a parent, I don't know if I would, I would just be like, all right, well, I'll buy something else for Christmas and we'll just get the figures when they come out. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, it's kind of odd. When you think it through, it's a very odd strategy. It's it's great from a collecting standpoint because it gives us this, this wild story. But really, there's a reason like other companies didn't do this <laughs> had a major negative impact. And I think it overcame that purely because it's Star Wars. You know, people love it so much. And then the, the, the products ended up being so good that any negativity was sort of forgotten a few months later. Uh, you know, but another element of this that we haven't talked about is that at this time, you know, I guess it ties into our lightsaber discussion. There was just a, a, a surfite, you know, there's a huge amount of bootleg stuff on the market or knockoff stuff. So Kenner, while they're trying to deal with bad press related to the early bird certificate and not having their products ready in time is dealing with, you know, ideal releasing their, um, what's that line called again? The star night line star team. Um, Yes. Star team. So you will, if you go through the articles released in 77, you will find ideal and the star team. A lot of the, the articles that illustrate that talk about star Wars, the illustrations are the star team, right? So, you know, you're just kicking yourself multiple times over at Kenner, like having to deal with this, you know, you have these other companies releasing these products that are selling well, and you're just getting bad press on not having your figures out. Um, and actually, you know, ideal was sued over that whole thing. And I think that that case was resolved sometime around the turn of 78 in ideals favor. So Kenner, or Fox or whoever sued ideal and ideal actually won the, the lawsuit. So, but yeah, fun time for Kenner for sure. Well, and, and you also point out in the article that Kenner's response um, was twofold where they were saying that authenticity was what the kids wanted in the toys, which is why that, you know, they making a case that they would go for something like the early bird certificate and then a certificate and this is a stretch, uh, the representative said um, the certificate would extend the holiday joy of receiving a gift. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> um, some of that stuff, you can just tell it, it's not convincing. Like you can sell like the PR folks and the marketing folks at Kenner got together and like, this is going to be their line, like emphasize the officialness. Like kids want the official product. Like, okay, they probably do, but also there's probably plenty that are happy with something else, maybe. Um, and then the other one, just like, yeah, you can extend the holiday feeling <laughs> into March. Like, well, generally, that's not what people want to do. That's a little bit sad. Um, like, if you have your Christmas tree up and you just leave it up until the spring, that's always a little depressing to me. Or um, So I don't know if people want to extend the holiday feeling. That doesn't seem like – I know they came up with that as a rationale, but I don't think that's very valid. I, I could understand a week or so, but you're right. Going into into March, where you're still saying, I mean, and I've heard so many stories um, from kids who grew up during that that time, um, who are now adults, um, that you know they'd say like they would go out to their mailbox every single day because they even at the time like they couldn't comprehend, they, they didn't understand. Okay, yeah, this is coming in two or three months, so they would just go every single day to their mailbox and check, you know. And it's just that that disappointment and that suspense and that excitement all wrapped in one, which is, which is really cool. But at the same time, you know, by, by the time you get to February or March, I mean, you have to be just deflated. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that's it really flies, but uh, they're an interesting spot. I mean, it, it's very difficult. I would really love to go back in time. I really wonder, 
Like if you could get, if you could 1978, you could get Bernie Loomis and some other Kenner execs in a room, like what they would have said, like if they had the chance to do it again, would they have done it again? I don't know that it really even increased sales all that much. You know, in other words, everybody who bought the certificate for Christmas, if they didn't have, you know, those four figures, would mo- how many of those people would have bought them anyway in, in spring? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how many sales they made on top of what they would have sold anyway a couple of months later. And right, is but it those worth sales- it? Those sales would have counted toward their 1977 year. Yeah, my guess is that most kids who got the early bird certificate, like they would have bought a Chewbacca or a Leia figure a couple months later anyway, right? Right. So I don't know if they're adding any sales. And as the exchange, you're just getting this tidal wave of bad press. I don't know if it's worth it as a company. And I know it ended up, it's on Bernie Loomis's Hall of Fame plaque, right? So people right. remember it as this positive thing, or at least this crafty or interesting thing. But I don't know. I really wonder if they, it, it, after all that, all the bad press, if they had the chance to do it again, if they would have done it in the same way, or have just put whatever out they could get out, non-action figures, and then just wait for the figures until the spring. Like, I do think, and I addressed this in the article, I do think that where it did have a positive effect was in the, I mean, it, it was publicity. It was, and in, in a certain sense, any publicity is good publicity, right? So for everyone to be talking about Star Wars figures in the in the holiday season, and everybody, all these stories to mention that they're coming later in the spring, like that has its own sort of cascading effect. So at least they kept awareness up, and I think a lot of people reading these stories knew that figures were on the way just because of the controversy surrounding the early bird certificate. Ron, that's a fascinating point that I think only your article has brought up, you know, that it was essentially an advertisement for the coming year uh, of toy sales. Um, right. But but also, too, like, I, you know, again, you um, talking about whether or not it actually benefited the company. And I think you make a pretty good case that maybe, you know, Bernie Loomis and company did not need to sell this. Yeah, just from a raw sales perspective, I'm not sure, but I I do think it served as like an introduction or a kickoff to the line. And even if it was a controversial one, I, I think the controversy doesn't hurt ultimately awareness. You know, people are aware of it and they're aware it's coming, and this only played into that. So in that sense, I think it was probably worthwhile. Sure. And now today, I mean, you know, if you think about any other toy line, it's very hard to remember the genesis of that toy line. We just, you know, there was one day mm-hmm. where it didn't exist and one day where it did for, for us, especially as, as children. But I think the early bird adds to the Star Wars legend because oh, no we're able to point that. back to that time. Yeah, no doubt about that. I mean, it, it even like the Rocket Fett was another probably a bad news story for Kenner. They had to change it. But ultimately, as far as the legend goes, I mean, it's, it's awesome. I mean, it, it, all that stuff just adds to the, the whole story. And without the early word certificate, I think it would take a lot away from the line as far as, you know, just the legend goes. I think you're right. And because it was something that was so unique and hadn't been done before, especially for children's toys, um, it makes it even more fascinating to a, a wider audience. Yeah, no doubt. I think everybody was aware through these stories that, you know, what was going on and that, that has its, you know, it has this benefit that, that rolls off of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my favorite thing in this article is just the, the guy 
the interview with the guy who was at the cardboard comp- the packaging company that got the license for um, making the displays and the actual envelopes. Daniel McAuliffe. Yeah, uh, was that his name? Mm-hmm. Um, the guy from Garfield, the Packaging Corp of America, I think it is. Um, that was probably my favorite article I found related to this, uh, and just the, the idea that. Okay, Kenner has to contract out a company to actually package these things up. So they send them the certificates and everything, and this company packages them and puts them in the store displays and ships them out. And, you know, all like the security around this. Um, so they, because of the certificates were, could basically re- be redeemed for, you know, a product worth whatever it was, you know, 10 bucks or whatever. Like they had actual value. So they didn't want people stealing the certificates. So they had like Pinkerton guards you know, guarding this thing, you know, around the clock, uh, which is fascinating. And then it gives you some production numbers where it's like um, a million of them were made and like 500,000 of them were pulped at the end of the day, which is fascinating too. I've never seen numbers put out for how many of these things were actually put out there. That was also for me, my, my, the most interesting part, um, you know, seeing that, that information, um, you know, because I, I think, you know, we look at it now as something really special, but at the time to know that it was, you know, that these Pinkerton guards were assigned uh, to to monitor this because these certificates were worth $10 million. Um, yeah. You know, that, that really, I, I don't, that's another thing that I, I think we as collectors, we don't realize that they could be redeemed at any point. So if someone were able to bring home, you know, a thousand of them, I mean, you know, you could, you could come away with some pretty good money. Yeah, yeah, right. A million, a million certificates printed, you know, in ten dollar value. So yeah, it's ten million dollars. So if you had an employee put a bunch in his pockets, so he could go home and mail them, mail them in, and get all these sets of figures. Um, and that would cost Kenner money, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I had never thought about that either. Uh, and I, I just thought that was the best. When I found that, I was like, man, I have to write something on the early bird articles that are out there because this is just too cool. I'm and glad the picture, you did. The picture of that guy from the packaging corp though standing there with the early word certificates in the in the display is just first rate too. I love that. It's a great photo. Um, where where did you find that? Oh, it's just in some newspaper search. It just came up, and I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was reading it. I was like, man, like this is just amazing. This the, the, I've never heard this, you know, these details before in any other in any other source. But it's fascinating. They had the pulp half of the production run, which is amazing too. Ron, did your heart sink into your stomach when you read that? Because the, the sentence is, the guards watched as the certificates were removed by forklift and dumped into a hydropulper, the beginning of the paper recycling process. Yeah, could you just imagine? I'm imagining those are probably sealed envelopes with certificates in them. Maybe they didn't seal. Maybe they're just the raw certificates. I don't know. But l- let's just say for the sake of the story that they were... They, they packaged them all up into the envelopes and then they just pulped all of them. I mean, each sealed early bird certificate is worth what 10,000 plus now five to 10 probably. And okay. Um, so they're just like throwing those all into a hydro pulper, you know, destroying them all. Yeah. That would be something to have video. That would be really something to see. I think that'd be difficult to watch though. That's a tough one. (laughs) It's not as bad as when you see those videos of people bringing up like a beautiful 12 back and like Dave Prowse signs his name across it. (laughs) It's worse. It's way worse. Yeah. 
So overall, then, in, in researching and writing about Star Wars this year, what were some of the things that, that you learned that stood out to you? Oh, um, probably just a little details. Like, I love finding out just, like, these, like, human stories or, like, off the off off the beaten trail facts like the guy who worked at this packaging corp hiring pinkerton guards and to protect these early bird certificates that this is like a real world story i've never heard before that ties into a collectible we love that really just adds a richness to my understanding of that collectible i love stuff like that um i love like doing the neville stockin archive miniatures piece um i love founding the uh finding some of the articles about him you know, in, in the in the piece I mentioned, like I found like he wrote to the San Rafael like gossip columnist asking for Lucasfilm George Lucas's phone number so he could call him and ask for a license. Right. You know, one, just that story, and two, um, it's great to have found that little item because it's just a few lines like in this old newspaper. To find something like that is just really fun for me because it just adds a new dimension to my understanding. And it's not in the article because it's not really related to those pieces. But I also found a lot of other articles about our friend Neville. Um, he shows up in the paper for his political activism every now and then. And uh, that was fun. And, you know, he, he had been involved with some other art projects. I, I shared them with Yehuda. I was like, here, here he is doing this. Here he is doing that. It, I guess <laughs> I'm kind of stalking this guy, which is a little bit creepy. Well, but, you're, um, getting, you're getting to know someone who had a hand in making uh, Star Wars items that you can now collect. Yeah, well, that's a unique name, right? And the guy was a public figure to some extent. So you, and it's like, oh, I didn't realize this. Here he is here. Here he is there. Um, uh, so that, that, that's, that's fun. You just, I, I've always been interested in just knowing stuff. Like, like when I first, we first started going to Cincinnati, my friends of mine and, and sitting in the room with these Kenner guys, like I was never like, a lot of times now you get the, the starstruck response where people want their autographs and stuff, which is fine. But I was never like wanting to meet these people from like a star aspect. Like always like was just very interesting sitting there and like they would say something and it was like, I never realized that like, about this or that item. And it was always just fun for me to note that down because it extends your knowledge. It's like, I would have never known about this in, inside story about this toy unless this guy had told me like a great art, a great, Example is like Steve Geddes, who I think people know now, um, but we were probably the first group of collectors to really meet him. He's a sculptor, and everybody knows this now because partly because we publicized it, and now Steve tells people the story personally himself, just how he sculpted his kid's name in the Dagobah playset. You know, just like little details like that. I just love trivia and like these interesting things I would have not known if I had never met Steve Geddes back in the day, or if I'd never found this article. Um, and you know, then the next step is, you know, just sharing it with people. Like it's not, to me, it's never been fun to just learn stuff and like keep it to yourself forever. Like, so it's always been one of the reasons I enjoyed writing about these things because I, I feel like I can share these fun tidbits and other people can kind of enjoy the, 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 whatever pleasure I got out of learning this or that, you know, cause I know other people are interested in these toys as well. So if I'm fascinated by the fact that, you know, this company hired Pinkerton guards to, to, to guard the early bird certificates. Like certainly other people probably will be as well. I think your approach parallels like something like what um, Steve Sansweet did as well, where you're, you're approaching it as a fan, but really more of a journalist or an historian, you know, and, and you are, you're 
you're talking to these people, you're getting to know them as people, but also where, you know, the role that they played in creating this stuff. And then you're, you're translating that and bringing that back to uh, a group of, of fans and collectors um, who also appreciate this type of information. Um, yeah, I think that's accurate. You know, I certainly, I love Steve Sansquit's writing, especially in concept to screen to collectible. And I think it's, that he's able to take these things and put them into sort of like a narrative. And I, I guess that's certainly, I didn't thought about it until you mentioned it, but yeah, this, especially this early bird piece is kind of like, this is probably a, a Steve Sansweet influence sort of thing. You know, when you, although he's talking at the time he was talking directly to employees and I'm taking it from old press clippings and stuff. Um, but I think the the narrative aspect of it, where you try to tell a little story, use these pieces of information to knit it together is certainly similar in some way. And I think you do a really good job of that. Again, you you do it in a way that's you make things very easy for the rest of us to comprehend and to understand. And you kind of walk us through that era, uh, which is which is hard to do. You know, it it takes a certain mind to be able to take all of the surrounding data and information and and you know historical events and then put it together in a, a tightly you know woven narrative. So um, I loved it. Um, since there's oh, always. Good. I really did. Like I, I, you know, all the, the, the four articles that you did this year, I thought were really special. And I looked forward every time one would come out. I mean, I just got really excited because it, I, I knew it was going to be an, uh, an area that I didn't know much about or, or know enough about. So, yeah, well, that's, uh, exactly what they're intended. You know, I, I want them to be fun to read. I want them to be packed with information and kind of have a perspective that people haven't engaged with before. So I, I appreciate you saying that because, that's certainly what my intent in, in writing some of these things. Yeah. And, and so you really did that, you know, for us. I mean, we, we all, you know, got something out of that. Um, since there's always an element of self-reflection in, in writing, what did you learn about yourself this year? Oof. About myself. About yourself through your writing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have a, a solid answer to that. I think... I just kind of feel like there's a place for longer stories that are tied into maybe newspaper stuff or, you know, things that have been documented. You know, how can you take stuff from the past, you know, and rescue it and kind of recontextualize it into an article that's going to be meaningful for a collector? You know, before I hadn't really been utilizing newspaper archives too much so I kind of got more into that and I found that is a really great source to, to kind of build on the way I, I like to write things. You know, in the past I used like actual newspaper clippings. Like I, I, I would have like an actual clipping in my collection. Um, now I'm kind of going back more to, um, you know, the digitized archives and pulling these things out, which is obviously way more extensive and you can find things in there that, I wasn't even aware of, you know, my, my knowledge of Star Wars collecting is pretty extensive, but you know, it's like you find an article about the guy who, whose company packaged up the early bird certificates and it gives you these details that you've never heard about before. Um, so I guess that's, I don't know if it's learning something about myself, but it's kind of learning, uh, coming across a new, a new way of engaging with content and, and being able to put it together in a different way. There was something connective in what you just said. Um, I when I was reading that last article about the early birth certificate, and I got to that that point about you know the, the actual numbers and, and that there were five hundred thousand that were destroyed, 
I had a feeling that that was new information to you as well. And I truly felt like we were learning that together. Um, and again, just very connective and, and very enjoyable in that sense. Well, yeah, I try to structure these things. So like the revelations, for lack of a better word, because I don't know, revelations is kind of a more sensationalist word than probably it warrants. But, um, you know, the interesting tidbits of information kind of are teased out as you read it. And one leads to the next one. So you have to keep reading to sort of get the, the get those tidbits. You know what I mean? So it's like one thing is leading your your mind through the next thing, which is I think if you're going to structure anything, whether it's a movie or a book or something, you always have to have that sort of progressive quality where your your mind is always anticipating the next turn of the corner. You know what I mean? So. I'm glad you said that because I think the pieces are definitely structured in that way, and particularly that archive miniatures one where I'd, I tried to kept, I tried to bring the reader along with my, I guess my, the fun I had in discovering the various aspects of these things. So I, I want the reader to discover it. It can't be in the same way you did because it's, it's, it's through a written piece rather than through lived reality, but at least you can simulate in a piece of writing, like what it feels like to, Oh, I just realized today by finding this catalog that this is true. You know what I mean? Um, where there is a progressive sort of sense of discovery as you read through them. So hopefully that comes across. It did. And I, I think it also came across in the article that we talked about last time, your tribute to John Kellerman, where you opened it with that sort of revelation of finding out what John, the way that John was collecting at the time, where the dealer that you were speaking to was sort of leading you down to that path to give you that big reveal that he was collecting one of every single back. Yeah. Well, collecting, and I guess life in general, in some ways, is all about, it's like a process of discovery. Again, that sounds corny, but I, I guess that's what it is. And so when you're writing about collecting and your discovery of something, it feels like your writing should attempt at least to bring your reader into that process where they have the same sort of sense of delight as you do in, in, in discovering something new or, you know, connecting something to something else, you know, that to me, if you're going to write about collecting, like, I think you have to kind of tap into that feeling to some extent. I think you do that really well. And it, you know, it's always enjoyable again, because you are, you're taking things that you discovered and then you're bringing it to us and you're allowing us to discover it with you, you know, and that, that's always been the feeling. Um, and so I, I'm really appreciative uh, for the, the time that you put into it and for your contributions to the, the blog and to the Star Wars Collector's Archive as well. Oh, well, I appreciate that, David. I certainly, you know, I always, like I said, I think the last time we spoke, uh, it's always fun for me to hear from people who enjoy this or that, even if it's not something that I wrote, but that someone else wrote, you know, it's certainly, uh, it's good to know that people read these things and get something out of them. Were there any Star Wars related works that were created by our peers that you enjoyed this year? Oh yeah, a lot. Um, Oh, this year. I don't know about this year. It's hard for me to remember what was this year and what was the previous year. Sure, Just overall. But yeah, I think we talked about some of them last time. You know, I, certainly, you know, Jonathan McElwain has contributed to some of the stuff on the blog. Um, you know, I think Yehuda did a, a really cool thing on 3D printed items a while back. Uh, you know, Pete Fitzke has done some good stuff. You know, he did something coming out of 
COVID about some of the COVID cultural things that happened in the hobby. That was interesting. I thought, um, it's a very well written article and very insightful too. It's actually, you would, you sent it to me, um, when we were discussing this and, um, I went back and reread it and, um, it's it's a great time capsule of what that that era was like for collectors during the pandemic. Yeah, it was um, pretty pretty interesting, you know, just to have someone take up that, you know. But it's been a quiet year, or maybe a couple of years in Star Wars collecting. So hopefully, people pick get some more energy and, and contribute some th- different things. Um, you know, our, our friend Steve Danley is always plugging away with his um, movies podcast, and he, Star Wars at the movies. That. Yeah, um, I always enjoy the stuff he comes up with. Um, I have to tell you, he when he does the podcast every year, um, at, at least one of the episodes that he does makes it into like my top, my, my top list of of the year as far as episodes. Um, he he did one on I think the twentieth anniversary of episode one and and um, oh, fans' yeah. reactions to it uh, and kind of a history yeah. of it. And then he did one where he spoke with um, one of the designers from the Disney parks, uh, a true legend. Yeah, I remember that. And, uh, you know, that that was just fascinating as well, too. So, I mean, he he puts out some really good content. Um, Yeah, there's been some other stuff. I think, I don't know, Jean-Francois Roland, I think is his name. I don't know if you know him at all. Um, He's a French collector. uh, And he's done a book and that's pretty cool i checked that out and he's also done a series of youtube videos um there's also i haven't seen it yet but uh yeah jean francois roland i want to make sure i wasn't getting his name wrong he's a super nice guy i've never met him in person but um he has a book called 1978 to 1985 kenner toy line and it's it's really worth your time that's the thing that i'd like that's come out this year he sent me a copy because i helped him with some stuff um, so I, I really like that. And there's some Italian guys. Uh, his name is Gianni. I'm trying to remember. Gianni Venturini. Um, and I have not seen their book yet, but I saw like the, the PDF proofs of it. And it's just amazing. Like that's a pretty great work as well. Like, so I'm hoping to, to get that when we come down the pike. Um, I'll have to check out both you, of them. That's great. Yeah. I can't remember what it's called. Um, it's it's a giant Star Wars book. Star Wars Toy Guide Volume 1 Kenner Action Figures. And I helped him a little bit with it and uh he was I think he's going to send me a copy, but I haven't got it yet, but I've seen what they did and it's just really seems like it's first rate, so I would recommend that. That's a great thing. You know, our friend that we we just saw last weekend, you know, Jim McCallum who's back in he reprinted his his famous Canada um collecting book from the i think it was the 90s that he put that out so that's another thing you know that that i've enjoyed over the last year to see that he reissued that uh but yeah people are still doing stuff you know it's it's just you know even though it's been kind of low energy for a while there's still good stuff out out there before we wrap up i I want to uh to just go over something with you that was really special uh for me and and I, i know for you as well um you had co-produced the second annual this year with Chris and Steph Riley. Uh, it's an right. Empire State Club event that's held in New York um, over the course of a long weekend uh, where people visit uh, the homes of collectors, including yours, uh, to see different collections. We all stay at the same hotel. Um, 
I, I did like a 10 episode <laughs> coverage of the the 2019 one, but um, so wow. we had this in August. Uh, I, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. And one of the most connective things I'd been to um, in, in, as a collector. Um, but I wanted to hear how the experience was for you as someone who was putting it on and then getting to experience the weekend. Oh, it was great. I mean, definitely the most fun collecting thing I've done since the last one, I guess, 2019. Um, yeah, you described it pretty well. You know, it's kind of like a somebody used the term boutique convention, which I kind of like. Um, okay, that makes sense. Meaning that it's like you're doing like a mini convention that, you know, there's a, a, a cost. You know, the cost is basically just our cost and we don't make any money on the thing. But the people pay and we use the money to rent a, a hotel room. And, you know, basically run a mini miniature convention, you know, that's catered. Um, we had speakers in to do presentations, you know, some of them were awesome. And Chris Gullius did this awesome presentation that someone described as the best presentation ever. Like maybe it could be right. It was really awesome. I knew it would be awesome when he said he'd do it, but it's even better than I thought it would be. I think it was um, Chris who described it as that. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. I'm just Chris, kidding. Chris described his own presentation as <laughs> which is a total Chris thing. But yeah, no, it really was great. So, um, and then, um, uh, you know, we had a sale at the end of it, like a swap meet where people, you know, trade and sell their stuff. And we had activities this time. You know, Chris Riley had this great idea to have these homemade ceramics. People decorate them and have a contest. We had an auction. Um, we had some kind of like first first rate swag that everybody got. Uh, and then there was multiple days. So the next day we did like a river cruise on the Hudson river and we had like another catered dinner and it was just basically a chance to get together with your friends and just hang out and, and do whatever and kind of just blow off steam without any of the headaches of a convention and all, all the good stuff of all the good stuff of, of a convention, but none of the bad stuff. Right. So, um, and, and beforehand, like the day before we did like a hike and I, you came on that and that was a lot of fun. Um, it's just basically like three days or two and a half days with, with friends where you can just do whatever. Oh, it was actually three days because we went to, went to Yehuda's house on the Monday. So it was right. three and a half days pretty much. Mm-hmm. It went um, from Friday afternoon until Monday evening. Yeah, So we went to Yehuda's and he threw a big party at his house. So a lot of fun. Uh, we had, man, I don't know what it was, 70 ish people. Uh, and you know, and I just I had no neg- no negatives to say about it. It's a lot of work, and it was basically the the monetary end of it is a giant headache trying to plan all this stuff and budget it all. Um, so certainly, I think Chris would agree, and Stephanie would agree, because Chris and Steph Riley were basically my co-conspirators on this thing, um, that even up to <laughs> a week out, we had some regrets about ever doing it, because it just was that big of a pain. Um but it ends up being all worthwhile in the end. So we're already talking about what to do for the next one and how we're going to manage that. I'm so happy to hear that because I, I loved it. Was the weekend a blur for you or were, you, were there times where you were able to kind of coast through it and relax and, and really get to enjoy it? Mostly a blur. Um, I enjoyed it, but it's, it, yeah, there's a lot. And even like the second day, I just, by the time we get to the boat, like I was just, my had a massive headache. And so I didn't, there's parts of it you don't enjoy. Um, but, uh, you know, whatever, I I knew that going in. I mean, we've done this a few times, so, I mean, it's a lot of work, but it's worth it. It's totally fun just having people out and spending time and just having activities for people. 
and doing stuff that people get a kick out of. Uh, but so, yeah, hopefully it'll happen again. Um, for you, could you give us an idea of like one or two personal highlights that you experienced? So something less general, more specific that you experienced at the annual that that someone could only experience at the annual, something that really kind of stuck out to you as a, as a great moment from that. Oh, this is probably not the greatest example because we did it on the day before and um, not everyone was there. Well, how many people did we have on the hike? Like 14. 16, 14. So we went hiking on the day before when everyone got in early and um, the hike was like two hours. That was just a lot of fun. It's just hiking is a great bonding experience because it's kind of like you're going through the physical exhaustion and all the stuff with a group of people and you're helping each other up the rocks and stuff. And so it was, we had a really good group and it was getting to the top was taking all the photos. It was a lot of fun and poor Brian angel, you know, <laughs> getting his butt kicked and then coming up like, you know, getting his second wind and then marching up was a lot of fun. Um, and then we went for ice cream afterwards. And so we, we all got ice cream at, at this local place and that was a lot of fun. So that's probably one of my best memories um of it it just that was one of the most the fun bits i've had um and then just you know at the event itself you know chris's presentation was a lot of fun especially like everyone talking at the beginning and then they quieted down during the, everyone being paying attention really closely towards the end of it um that was that was good fun too so I, those are two things that stick out the the friday that we went on the hike and then went for ice cream that is one of my favorite days of the entire year it was so special i had never gone hiking before and it was it was one of those kind of life changing moments where you go okay i'm going on as many hikes as i can for the rest of my life because they yeah you know, we'll try to we'll try to organize something i told you we want well you were invited we in in october we went on a much longer one with several star wars friends and that was that was oh man it was difficult but it was a lot of fun but yeah that that Friday at the annual was just perfect. And it is great too, because it had been so hot for all August, basically like nineties. And then the weather broke right like the day before we went. So the weather wasn't too bad. It was like in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that was a nice thing. It didn't rain. It was sunny. Oh, it was beautiful. Um, and just being really kind of at the, 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 the peaks that we had traversed and just looking at the entire world around us and having that, that beautiful blue sky, very few clouds, uh, taking photos together. And just, it was also nice because it gave us a chance to, to hang out as a group, but then also to break away into these little subsections. Uh, there were some people there that I had never met before, like Brian Angel's wife. Um, and, right, and yeah, yeah. you know, she and I got a chance to really kind of talk and get to know one another, which set up for a wonderful um, friendship over the course of the weekend. Yeah, yeah, I I met a few collector wives at the event. That that was uh that was one of the things that was nice too. I hadn't really um met some of those so those ladies and it was certainly worthwhile. And that's one of the fun things about the annual set. It's it's kind of structured as something that you could potentially bring your significant other to and that they won't hate you for it cuz it's not all total nerd stuff. Um so it's definitely nice to see that people brought their wives um, and that, that they hopefully had an okay time. I think this is a testament to the atmosphere that 
that you, Steph, and Chris had created, and then um, our fellow collectors who attended as well, there were so many people who went for the first time or who aren't Star Wars collectors but came with their significant others. And I got to, a chance to speak to every single one of them, and they all said to me, I can't wait to come back f- for the next event. I, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm basically like I'm a, I'm a fan for life. I'm a, I'm, I'm a member for life. And for me, I mean, it was always, it was funny to hear because it's like, you don't, you don't even collect Star Wars, but they didn't care. They had such a good connective time. Right. Yeah, no, that's definitely awesome. And I'm, I'm glad that, you know, I met some new people um, who I hadn't met before. Um, and, and that was great. I had time to hang out with them, but just, you know, people, that I hadn't really had the chance to spend time with. Um, like Chris Golsinski, I think is how you pronounce his last name. Yeah. And that, somehow uh, yeah, he, was, he was labeled as uh, evil Chris G. And I don't know again, if that was the other Chris G who named him that or somebody else. But. Yeah. Like, you know, I've never, I'd never met him before. Yeah. Um, and it was fun. I got to talk to him just like, you know, you have, it's a good environment to, for the first time to sit there and talk to people and, kind of get to know them and without the the rush or the pressure of or the noise and the crowds of a, a celebration or something like that so it's very intimate which is a kind of a the fun aspect of it ron i got to tour um your collection with chris golzinski uh, and he had never seen it before so that was really special too because um he's a he's a big power of the force collector yeah and right, yeah. to see his reaction i mean there were moments where he just he could speak you know and it, that that was a fun one that again only happens at something like the annual yeah well that's good to know yeah he, he shared some of the photos of his stuff on his phone with me and i was just on oh, some great stuff man a lot of uh hard copies and, you know, proto molded power of the force figures, just first rate. So, and yeah, I, I hadn't ever had the chance to really talk to him before. So it was good to, to do that. Well, thanks. Thank you. And Chris and Steph for, for putting that together and, and Yehuda as well. Cause he hosted on, on Monday, which was, oh, was yeah, great yeah, too. He uh, yeah. He did a great job, but yeah, no, well, hopefully it's too good of a thing and people like it too much to not try to continue it. So I think we will. It's just, even though it's called the annual, it's probably not in the cards to be actually annually, especially <laughs> since all this other stuff going on in Star Wars collecting. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, we will, like I said, Chris has really had some good ideas and we've gone over them and I, I hopefully that they will come to fruition. Um, and I think, you know, yeah, I think if we're able to do what we want to do, I think it'll be potentially even cooler than what we've already done. So I look forward to it. Um, as a as a writer now for the Star Wars Collectors Archive and the blog, are there any topics that you're interested in exploring as articles in the coming year? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a few things. I mean, again, these are just rough ideas. Like I think I talked earlier about just having something in the back of your brain. That's kind of how these things usually end up being articles, like something you're interested in. And then over the course of years, usually some other pieces fall into place to where your understanding is better. And it's like, well, I should write something about this. Um you know, just some of the things like, and I started doing this, but I just didn't get as far as I wanted with the research because it's very difficult without like having some sort of catalog. Well, I have some catalogs, but some internal paperworks is, um, uh, multi, you know, the six packs, so there's the yellow one and the red one, yes. the two, um, Empire Strikes Back ones. Yes. And the two Darth Vader cases that came with three figures. You're aware of those? Uh, that was the Bespin set and the Bounty Hunter set? 
Yes, so there's two different ones. So basically through collecting catalogs, I've kind of come to the semi-conclusion, or at least I have the suspicion that those products were Kenner made those specifically for probably a set group of retailers, right? And I think it's probably basically for catalog-based retailers. Some of them also have brick-and-mortar locations. Maybe most of them do that weren't, you know, Montgomery Ward, Sears, JCPenney, um, and Spiegel, which were the big ones. So this is like, I guess, your secondary secondary line of catalog retailers. And like it's like Best, LaBelle's, Dolgan's, big big stores, but not um, as big as like something like Sears. And a lot of them were regional, and some of them overlap where it's like, some of them have shared catalogs. I can't remember if it's Dolgan's and LaBelle's, but if you find some of the catalogs, there'll be different stores, and they'll have the same exact content. So I think it's like, there seems to be a single distributor maybe that supplied these stores or they maybe had merged, but they hadn't changed the names. You know what I mean? Um, but they had the same product offerings and they were in different names, probably different regions. And so my sense is that whatever distributors probably supplied those stores, they probably got Kenner to give them some kind of exclusives. And I think that's what those items were. Um, but I'm not sure if they were exclusive to those stores or if they were also available in other places. So it, it, anyway, whatever the story ends up being with those products, like that's like something for the future that I want to kind of drill down into a little bit more. And I started a few years ago, it was a few years ago now, but I posted on Facebook and some of the groups like asking for people who had those to give like with price stickers on them to take photos. Cause I'm curious what documentation is out there and what stores carry them. You know, a lot of the the price stickers I have found on those are, do go back to those select group of catalog retailers that also had brick and mortar locations um, that I, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, Anyway, that's my suspicion on what those are because they're the only products that are not in any of Kenner's actual catalogs. So they're not in any, normal Kenner catalogs, which is intri- is intriguing, right? And then Kenner also did their department store programs, which were exclusives for big department stores. That Basically, that's the special offer line, like the three packs. Like If you were a, a, re- a department store like Caldor, you had the opportunity to buy those. Right. Um, so those products are not in those catalogs as either, right? So who are they available to? Like how did Kenner put them out? And I have a sense that it interfaces somehow with those those smaller catalog retailers or mid-range catalog retailers. And it's just the missing piece of the puzzle is like finding something that's related to who was the distributor or, um, you know, finding like some kind of catalog or something would really help too, or a sales sheet or something like that. But that's one of the things I'd like to explore more. Um you know, and, and the other thing is the Regal Chewbacca, the, the large size Regal plush Chewbacca. Is it like a is four foot that? tall plush? Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. There's always been mystery about what that actually is. Um, the line on it says a store display and that goes way back, but I don't think that's accurate. I think, I mean, they've turned up with the tags and I don't believe that it was a store display. I believe that that was a product personally. Um, and that's kind of another thing that'll be 
cleared up if, once you find a catalog or something. I did find, and when I do write about it, I'll put it out there. I did find a newspaper article that talks about it being for sale at a retail location. Um, so for sure it was sold, um, not just used as a store display, but I think that's another topic that I feel like it only would take a couple of more pieces of information and I, I feel comfortable writing something about it. Those are two really interesting topics. Um, yeah, it's just two things that are, I think there's still, even though all the Star Wars stuff, people know so much about it, right? And people have written so much about it and discovered so much. There's still these little areas that have like, you know, a little bit of mystery to them where it's like, well, um, another one's the TIE bomber, right? And I've done some work on that as well. Um, and uh, the story on that going way back, one of the stories was that it was a JCPenney exclusive, which I think that had been something that Steve Sansweet might've got information on. And I tried to ask Steve like where he got that. And he, I don't think he could remember, but I don't, I'm sure whoever gave that info to Steve was not lying, but I, maybe it was intended to be one, but I don't think it was. Um, so I, I kind of thought doing an article about just the tie bomber, like just putting together all the evidence of where it was sold when it came out. Um, and it, it could be that it did originate as a JCPenney exclusive and they just didn't release it that way because there's plenty of, I have price sticker evidence and ad evidence that even when it first came out, it was not exclusive to JCPenney. I see a common thread here because you have these, you're, you're discussing these items that most people are familiar with. Uh, there is, um, there is a lot of interest in them and there does seem to be somewhat of a mysterious quality as to where they fit into the, the Kenner line overall. Um, but they're, yeah. you know, they're, they're iconic pieces now, but to me, it, it, you're trying to figure out kind of where they, they fit in, in that timeline and to give them a, a larger historical context. So I find them fascinating. I can't wait to read those. Yeah, no, it's certainly true. Like when you've been collecting a long time, you're just aware of these little, things right that oh the tie bomber that was a jc penny thing and it's just like okay well and then you find stuff that contradicts that it's like well was it re- was it really like i know that's what people say and but it doesn't match up with my experience so it's like there's a story there right like the, the why was it associated with jc penny like what's the history of that like where was it really sold like what why was it rare like there's a bunch of like questions about that that just haven't really been answered in my mind. So to me, the person who's like, likes to write about things, it's like that immediately is like, Oh, well you kind of sent like, well, there's a story there. Right. And if we could just find a couple of bits of information that sort of proves our point, then we can come out with that. And, you know, I guess that's kind of a lot of the way I've approached things. Like even the factors display thing we talked about earlier, like that was something that Todd Chamberlain and I have been talking about for over a decade, like the factors and what that was. And finally I felt comfortable. I I had found enough pieces of evidence, including like the sales sheet. And I found some stills, you know, in the possession of Kenner employees. And I just kind of felt confident what those were. And then, and then you release something on it and it kind of clears up a a mystery for people. But in, in my mind, it's been something I've been asking for the last 10 years or so. I, um, I recently did a podcast episode um, where I spoke with Danny Katzel and Tony Van Dam, who are two uh, post Star Wars poster collectors, and they really gave me an overview in our conversation of the world of poster collecting. Are there any areas that you'd like to learn more about this year from others um, that that you're not that familiar with? You know, beyond 
um, figure action figures and figure collecting um, that you'd like to hear more about? Oh, really anything, you know, posters is a great area for sure. Um, And if Danny or any of those guys wants to put together a blog post, they're certainly welcome to um, just let me know. But uh, just to pick one though, our friend Yehuda is really into watches, you know, in a big way that, you know, I know we have other friends as well. Um, Tony D is also a big watch guy, but Yehuda has been collecting watches for a long time and um uh he has been planning to do a blog post i'm not sure what the the topic on watches will be but i'm, I'm excited to see what he comes up with because uh, he's always got interesting he notices a lot of things and, and is good at putting together information so i'll look forward to seeing you who does watch commentary so like the bradley timepieces of that era i think so yeah like that's kind of the era he's looking at okay and then just to end on this, um, when you and I spoke last time, I asked you if you had any advice for a newer collector, you know, wanting to be part of the collecting clubs and the collecting groups. And you, you kind of said that, you know, you would tell them to just jump in and come out to a meetup and to get involved. Um, for our second conversation here, what would be a second piece of advice you'd want to share with them? Oh, a second piece of advice. Um, I guess I think about it quite a bit is as a collector, don't um, limit yourself too, too much. And I've thought about actually doing a blog post. that's just about like collecting thoughts or advice for people. Um, just things that I've thought I've learned as a collector. But I think if you're going to be a collector for a long time, it's you have to constantly keep pushing forward and sort of make your own way with things. And I touched on this in the, in the Kellerman, the John Kellerman remembrance that I posted um, where I said it's something like great collectors do it their own way or something like that. Um, I think that's an important piece of advice because I've seen a lot of people, when I say do it your own way, I mean like, you know, one, take your own approach to things. Don't really base what you're interested in on other people, but also continue to find what, continue to, to refine what you're interested in. And don't just refine it in a way that whittles it down to a small point, but make sure you try to whittle it out in a way. Like your collection should, if you want to collect and, and have fun and stay at it for a long time, you shouldn't focus too much. I, I see collectors. They just, and I'm not slagging on anybody. Everyone can do what they want, but they, they decide like, well, I'm just going to collect, you know, Boba Fett's on Empire card. Okay. If that's your collection, you're probably not going to last long, right? You're, you're going to buy your couple of things and you're going to show collectors your seven Boba Fett's on Empire card. And that's going to be all she wrote. You're going to grow bored of that pretty quickly. Um, and your collection is just going to be kind of samey, right? So, you know, like I said, with Yehuda and the watches, you know, he started getting big into watches years ago. And this is like one of the things that really keeps him going. Like when he wakes up and thinks about collecting, like he's interested in a number of things. Like he doesn't just collect, he's got watches, he's got the, the archive miniatures figures. And they're, they're in these categories that a lot of people have not really focused on. Right. So there's Star Wars collecting is so huge. Like there's enough out there where you can really kind of find your own thing. And, you know, Jonathan McElwain is a great example. He collects mostly food stuff, but he's always 
collecting these things that I would never even thought about. And I'm sure that's kind of what gives him fuel to stay in the hobby. Um, You know, he did a, he did a blog post on this for the archive a while back. It was on like star Wars in, it was these pamphlets or magazines devoted to cake decorating, I think. And he had found a bunch of them and there was a bunch of star Wars cakes in there. So, and he was like, you know, hunting these things down the magazines and that's, I've never heard about that. You know, that's fascinating. He's finding this niche and he probably goes and he runs an eBay search and it keeps him invested in some way. And, you know, the stuff people are always asking me, like, what are you collecting? And they were always expecting me to say, oh, well, you know, I bought seven prototypes this year. It's like, no, generally not. You know, I'm not even really looking for that because they're outside my price range for the most part. Um, I have what I have. But the stuff I'm interested in collecting is like, you know, the, the archive miniatures figures, I'm trying to get those, you know, and there's still, I still are missing some and it's still, it's still fun to be finding these things. And I can still find them for prices that aren't insane. Right. And that's what keeps me going. You know, I'm still, I found like, like I mentioned, I found a couple of the factors Kenner posters this year. I'm still missing one, you know, looking for those is, is something that keeps me going. Um, and I think as long as you're, able to find those little niches for yourself you can sustain the hobby for however long you want it to but if you just if you're only going to say well i'm going to collect unproduced droids and ewoks hard copies like you're going to buy one piece every few years and then you're probably going to get bored (laughs) after right after a while right um so i guess that's that's one of my pieces don't limit yourself too much Try to find these areas that you find interesting that other people don't necessarily care about. I know that for a lot of people, collecting is is a social thing, and they want to find like this item and and stick it on Facebook and have people be like wowed by it. And that tends to be like I don't know, like twenty one back Boba Fett in AFA ninety condition, right? That's going to wow a lot of people. But th- there's you don't need to collect that way. You can sort of just find these niche areas and stuff that's interesting to you. And that's kind of what the collectors who have been around a long time, that that's kind of what sustains them is that ability to find these new areas that have not been exploited. Yeah. My personal approach has been to, to kind of, you know, especially when prices started to rise in 2020, I've started to really go toward where the spotlight wasn't. Um, I did that initially with the modern star Wars prototypes. Most people didn't care, you know, at at a a point. Um, Mm -hmm. But, uh, but even since then, like I've, I've added, different areas uh, to my focus where people really aren't focused on them right now. And, and I, I think that that makes it interesting because it, you're doing it more for yourself. You, you are at that point uh, an historian, you know, where you're, you're unearthing certain things and, and trying to figure out what they are and where they fit into the overall timeline of star Wars and collecting. And uh, it makes right. it really exciting. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a hundred percent true. And really like just to use myself as an example, like years ago, this is like, 12 years ago, like I just started to get really interested in, you know, unlicensed ceramic stuff. Um, and there was a few reasons. One, I liked the homemade quality that you could, I liked feeling it was like an arts and crafts thing that each one had its own personal stamp on it. I liked the the outdated seventies, eighties quality, but like people don't really make that stuff anymore. So there's a good nostalgia factor and a lot of them are just unusual. Right. And then another factor was like kind of and this is like something how eBay changed collecting in general, like very consciously. It was like, this is something that if I had wanted to collect in 1990, 
I could not have, I would, the only thing I could have done is stop at antique shops and look for these things. And I never would have been able to amass a big collection of them. But eBay is such that it sort of collapses that the, the geographical quality and you can just run a search and all, all of a sudden all these things that would have been very hard to put together in the pre eBay world is now I can do a search every day and I can just pick these things off. Right. And I did that for like 10 years of just buying these things. And I found a ones, a lot of ones that people weren't even aware of. Um, but nobody cared. Like I, you could buy these things for 20 bucks, 15 bucks. Like I would have no competition. I'm just like sweeping the floor on these things. Good right? feeling. Yeah. Um, and I loved it as like, and people come to my house and they'd freak out. They'd be like, I can't believe all these. I was just like, yeah. Just, and cause they'd never seen it. It's like something people have never seen. Um, and you know, as things turned out, you know, for however it happened, like those became hot, like a couple of years ago <laughs> and now they're selling for hundreds of dollars. It's like, Whoa, okay. The, the, I guess the, the ship has sailed on that one. Just like it sailed on the Amish collectible, uh, 3d paintings. Um, but, uh, so that's just a, one example, like of something that I became interested in and, and there's other, you know, other areas out there you can do that with. Um, I became interested in the, SD's model rockets a few years ago. I actually did a blog post on those. And I think those are great pieces. I mean, they're not that pricey, but they're rare. And to find the box ones in nice shape is not easy. I built that collection over five years. People still don't care about them. <laughs> Maybe it'll be like ceramics, though, where it's like all of a sudden people care. But, uh, but that's the yeah. perfect type of thing to collect. I, I Especially this year, I've had people, fin- like other collectors, finish whatever runs they were doing. So a loose figure run or a specific, you know, carded figure run and have contacted me and said, what should I collect now? And my answer is put your money aside, build a war chest and wait for something that you really enjoy to come up instead of just funneling money into some other area. But that perfect area is something where it is largely unexplored. The the spotlight isn't there. Um, you can enjoy it and it's it's difficult and rare enough that it's going to take a little while you know so you're not going to be able to, to get everything in like a week or a month and at the same time though too when the pieces come up they're not that expensive so you can really enjoy it you don't feel the stress of having to put out a few hundred or a few thousand dollars every time a piece arrives um and you know and again it's just an area that maybe the spotlight isn't and it's really for you yeah, I mean, to me, if you're going to be around for any length of time, you have to find these areas that you can sort of just, like I said, run the table on. Like, it's not expensive. You're interested in it. Hardly anyone else is, and you're just buying these things. Um, and that, to me, is a lot of fun. Like, you end up having a collection that people haven't seen before, and that is kind of reflective of your personality. And like I said, sometimes people pick up on it later, and then all of a sudden the value of the crap you assembled is, uh, goes up a bit, but absolutely the goal, but yeah. I, I have an Ahsoka modern focus. <laughs> so it, it, yeah. it gets very expensive now. Yes. It's annoying. Like all of a sudden I got, including a lot of friends of mine, like now I can't really get a ceramic piece. They all get bit up and it's just like, all right, I'm out of this. Um, but uh, for a while, it was great. Like I loved getting these things. It, they, it was it was a bummer because they would break in shipping like twenty percent of the time. Oh, of course. But um, and that was a heartache, man. Like so many times, I get, I get a really good one, the thing would just break. But man, I found some stuff I was never even aware of. Like it's just like I didn't know this was even out here, you know. 
Um, of course, now people like Chris Riley, our friend, has done way more work on that than I ever did. Like he's gone and contacted a lot of the people who made these things. And he has all the molds, but that's fine. Like when I got into bootlegs years ago, like I was the first person I know who really bought any of those Polish the unarticulated and the articulated bootlegs. Like I had like 20 or 30 of those things that I bought and people made fun of me for buying them. Like, man, you paid. <laughs> I think I paid like $20 a piece for them. Cause I've never seen them before. And I knew it was like, nobody has these. Right. And I'm like 20 bucks a piece, but this is like 96 or whatever. So it's like, that was a lot, I guess. But people like, like those things are ugly. I'm like, yeah, but they're pretty cool. Like I've never seen anything like this. Um, you know, and then I, I was probably one of the earliest bootleg collectors, but then like people like Joe and John, Joe Glacius and John Alvarez took it way to a next level. And by that time, everything, the price went up and it's like, all right, well, I have what I have on <laughs> <laughs> while it lasted, but it's too outside of my price range now. Uh, but there's, I guess my point is there's always people who come in and they just kind of do it way better and do it to the nth degree. But then that, when that happens, the price rises as well. And it, I sort of lose interest at that point. <laughs> you know, Understood. Well, good. then you move on to the next topic. So, you know, that yeah, works. that's what I mean. You have to always have this, like, what am I interested in? What am I going for? If it's just 12 backs or just some kind of super popular thing, like I don't, I think I see collectors burn themselves out on that all the time. So my advice is to develop some side gigs that you can sort of exploit that not, not expensive, but interesting. And I, I think, collections end up being interest more interesting and collectors end up hanging around for a longer time when they do that. Do you have any personal or collecting goals for 2023? Ah, uh, no, I don't really. Um, I never really had, I, I see people post that on Facebook. Like what's your goals for around new year's. They always do that. Or they used to do it on rebel scum. I never really had any goals, so I don't really, I mean, just to keep moving along and, uh, looking forward to seeing people, you know, get togethers. I guess that's one of my goals is to have fun doing that. This is, this is a weird goal, but I guess part of I'm getting to the age when it's like, I have to, I have so much stuff, David, that's just like, including stuff that I don't even care about. Like I just need to get rid of a lot of, um, you know, excess things through selling them or whatever. Um, and before you get excited, I'm not talking about great stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, can, can we claim stuff. full cabinets? Is that possible? I just have a lot of stuff. It's like, man, I need to thin things down, but I don't know if 2023 is going to be a good environment to sell stuff in. So it might get put off. I just seems like right now, I guess it's not, I don't know. People say it's not a recession, but I just, I see collectibles prices seem to be down to me and it's like interest. So I don't know if right now is a great time to try to move things. Might have to wait till the economy picks up a bit, but. I guess that's a, that's a goal. It's just, and, and not just star Wars too. Like I have a lot of movie posters. I have too many. So it's like, <laughs> I got to get some of the, I need to taper it down and, you know, and get some of the money back out of that stuff and kind of live a normal life without having a huge collection. That's a burden. Okay. Well, it's, it sounds like thinning out, um, and, you know, carefully curating your, your collection and then, um, you know, going to, to more meetups and, you know, more, uh, in-person events, which uh, that, that sounds like two great goals. Yeah. And also, you know, I'll keep buying stuff that, that I'm looking for. So like, I'm still those archive miniatures figures and whatnot. And you know, so certainly haven't stopped doing that either, but that's just, as far as a definite goals, I mean, that's always just 
a vague sort of goal. Like, yeah, I'll keep looking for this or that, but I don't, as far as this year specifically goes, like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, those are goals in addition to becoming the Amish painting overlord and, and rolling well, that galaxy. General. Yeah. I'm just going to be Amish in a general sense. Okay. I don't want to have me. Perfect. Well, is this like, is this like, like bad? Like, is someone going to like give us like, I'm not, I'm, I'm just so everyone knows I'm not making fun of the Amish. But, uh, oh no, not, a, not at all. <laughs> Absolutely not. But no, it just, it's, uh, it, it's, it's amazing how beloved the Amish art has, has been. And, um, you know, yeah, I, I like I like those paintings, man. I thought they had a lot of character. I've never seen anything quite like that. Like I I would totally buy one of those things. So yeah, if you're if you're sitting on a Zook collection, uh, the Zook brothers or however you pronounce it, like uh, I, I'm I'm interested in some Zook paintings. Although I don't know where I'd put them. They're kind of big and bulky. They, so. they are really big and bulky, but absolutely gorgeous. Uh, some of my favorite paintings that I've seen in a long time. I just like. <laughs> I just like looking at it and being thinking all the effort that went into them. It's just kind of like very cool. I I guess that's part of the joy of folk art stuff like that. When you just see these unusual takes on things, it's just, you know, it's very cool. Yeah. Well, Ron, it was so much fun getting to hang out with you this past weekend and for doing these conversations too. I I thank you for taking the time and for putting the time into helping us really understand a lot more of the star wars collecting universe and the star wars and kenner universe as well too um i wish you and your family the happiest of holidays uh and i I look forward to seeing you soon sure yeah i'm sure we will i know we already have plans so i'm looking forward to that and uh yeah thanks for tolerating my long-windedness and um Amish jokes and whatnot, but uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk soon. And thanks for having me on it. It's always fun to talk about. Oh man, this was, I, I was looking forward to this. This was an absolute blessing and, you know, really just to be able to, to sit and, and to go in depth on, on this stuff. Um, really you're, you've been an inspiration to me for collecting and I've, I've just, you know, I've enjoyed reading your work, uh, learning more about star Wars through your lens. Um, and, and then just, you know, having these, these conversations and, and kind of, you know, going beyond, uh, the, the written word. Yeah, Dave, it's always a pleasure. And if you're going to be in my area, let me know so I can uh, try to avoid you. <laughs> All right. I will make sure. I will send you a text or a phone call way in advance. <laughs> All right, my friend. Good talking to you. Right. I'll see you soon. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank Ron for taking the time to sit with us and to share what he's learned from a year of writing, and really, from a lifetime of collecting. These types of conversations are truly what make collecting a rewarding and vastly enjoyable hobby, and I'm so happy to have found a friend like Ron along the way. And I can't wait to see what new information Ron digs up on beloved collectibles like the Empire Strikes Back Vader cases, the rare six-pack figure sets, and the die-cast TIE Bomber. I think many of us would love to know more about them, and through Ron's engaging and humorous writing. And as always, if you're enjoying the podcast and these conversations, please subscribe and leave a review. And please, share an episode with a friend. The goal of the podcast is to build meaningful connections through a love for Star Wars and collecting. 
And if there are people out there looking for a community like this, a simple act of passing along an episode to a friend may be the thing that gets them to come out to a meetup, or to start their own club, or to grow and to use their unique talents in creative and boundless ways. Next episode, we'll celebrate the holiday season on Star Wars, Prototypes, and Production. <laughs>